Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 43. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have come up front. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, just get their attention. They'll get one of those. It's marked for you at Isaiah 43. And that Bible is our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's word. So we will look at Isaiah 43 in just a moment. Let me say that I have a number of pastor friends who have told me over the years that they feel like they have to clean up when they get up to preach. They have to clean up for what the music people did. Really sad, isn't it? In order to get people's focus back upon what we're here for, they have to make some introductory comments to do that. And I never have to do that. And that's because our music people put our focus upon the Lord as they've done today. So I'm thankful for them using their talents in that way. Isaiah 43, we'll be considering in just a bit. At least 25 years ago, my wife Kim was at a lunch with a woman from our then church. They had gotten together at that woman's request in order for her to ask Kim's advice on a range of issues that the woman was facing. So Kim listened as the woman began to lay out her concerns. Some were about her work, others about relationships inside and outside her home, some about church matters. The woman herself later related to me what Kim said after she had heard her out. After this Christian lady and member of our church finished talking about what was most important to her in her life at that moment, Kim looked her in the eye and simply asked the question, What about God? The woman told me she was taken aback and also convicted by that simple question, what about God? Because in that moment, she realized that she was, in effect, looking at her problems from the perspective of a practical atheist. She attended church regularly. She even served in the church faithfully. She knew the Bible quite well, and she lived a moral life. But when it came to the religious compartment of her life, making a difference in the rest of it, there was, in practice, no relationship between them. What she learned and what she sang about and believed on the Lord's Day did not apparently apply to any other day. What she believed on Sunday was unrelated in practice from how she experienced her Monday. Over the years, I've had people communicate in a similar way to me. They lay out their struggles and concerns, and when I begin to talk to them about Jesus and the Bible, they respond with some variation of, listen, I need help with real life. Implying that Christianity is confined to their spiritual life, and it does not impact in any meaningful way their so-called real life. Christian people commonly make that dichotomy in their thinking. There's my spiritual life and then there's the rest of my life. And they don't necessarily relate to each other. We often live our lives in compartments that are hermetically sealed off from one another. Our lives are like a collection of silos that we deal with one at a time and separate from the others, most not impacting the others And with the one labeled religious slash spiritual, especially left to itself. 
It reminds me of the story of a boy whose father asked what he learned in Sunday school that day. Well, the boy said, our teacher told us about when God sent Moses behind enemy lines to rescue the Israelites from the Egyptians. When they came to the Red Sea, Moses called for the engineers to build a pontoon bridge. After they had all crossed, they looked back and saw the Egyptian tanks coming. Moses radioed headquarters on his walkie-talkie to send bombers to blow up the bridge and save the Israelites. The kid's dad said, is that really the way your teacher told the story? Well, not exactly, the boy sheepishly admitted. But he continued defensively, if I told it her way, you'd never believe it. kind of the way it is, isn't it? We tell these stories on Sunday. We say we believe this stuff one day a week, one hour a week. What difference does it make? Today we introduce a series that's designed to challenge us to ask whether we really believe it. And if we say we do, what difference does it make in our lives? Each of the next several weeks, we're going to answer the question, What's God got to do with it? What's God got to do with my fears, my doubts, with my guilts, with my circumstances, with everything? Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Our Father, you again have gathered us. It is you who has brought us here. It is you who has given us the freedom to live in a country where we can gather without fear It's you, most importantly, who have given us the desire in our hearts to be together with your people, to encourage and to be encouraged, to praise you in song, to give back to you as you have first given to us, to open your word before us and to learn from it so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for gathering us. And now we ask you, Lord, to accomplish your purpose in and through us as we look at your word together. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1 of Isaiah 43. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now I'm going to relatively quickly explain what these verses mean and then move to some application of them for us. Verse 1, the words but now contrast the tender tone which with God speaks 
in the verses we just read with the stern warning and promise of judgment that he issued in the previous chapter. There God said through the prophet Isaiah that if his people continue to refuse to obey the law of their God, then he would have no choice but to judge since he is a holy God who not only does not tolerate evil, he is by nature constitutionally incapable of doing so. But now in chapter 43, God reassures them that even though judgment will come, as the Bible tells us elsewhere, he disciplines those he loves. And he does so precisely because he loves. So in verses 1 and 5, God says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. When I go to the hospital to pray with someone before they go in for surgery, as I've done with many of you over the years, I often read from the prophet Isaiah just a couple of chapters back in chapter 41, where God says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then I remind the person that I'm visiting with that the most often given command in the entire Bible is do not fear. Do not be afraid. Why is that? So very much to be afraid of, is there not? So very much to be fearful about in a fallen world. Not only the things we do to endanger ourselves and others, but the things that others do to put us in peril. If left to ourselves, we have good reason to be afraid. In fact, in verse 1, when it uses Jacob and Israel together, it's a reminder of the nation's origins. Coming from their forefather Jacob, whose very name means deceiver, and who the Bible shows us lived up to his name. And this suggests right away that God's grace is given to an unworthy people because he has a great purpose for those people. So God reassures them with the names and titles that he uses in verse 3. Lord, your God, Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And all of those imply a special relationship between God and his people so that he acts on their behalf. He created them out of really nothing, as it were, into a mighty nation while they were enslaved in Egypt about 700 years before Isaiah's prophecy. And like he did in bringing them out of Egypt in the great exodus led by Moses, God will also not abandon them to their future captors in Babylon, but instead promises to gather them from all over the earth. The passage makes allusions to the exodus. For example, in verse 2, it reminds them of God having led their ancestors through the Red Sea. It looks forward to other deliverances that God will make when it says you're going to walk through the fire and not be burned. And we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who did that very thing as recorded in the book of Daniel. The statement, I am the Lord your God, in verse 3, would remind every Jewish reader of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 that we together have been looking at over the last several weeks in our series on the Ten Commandments, where God began the giving of his law by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In these verses in Isaiah 43, we succinctly see what we see elsewhere throughout the narrative of the entire first part of your Bible in God's dealing with his chosen people, Israel. 
we see a cycle of God's grace, their response, judgment, God's grace again, their response, over and over again. But here's what I want you to notice, and what God is telling them in Isaiah 43. Every time, God's grace is still there. Every time, God's grace still comes back. Every time he is judging, every time he is disciplining, in fact, that's an extension of his grace as well. God always extends his grace, even in their and our sin, because God finishes what he starts, and he has a purpose for them and for us, even when he disciplines and judges. Friends, this is true for all of God's people, including us, who, according to verse 7, are called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So as we begin our series today asking, what's God got to do with it? I want us to be reminded of what I say in the first point in the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. We see, first of all, that we were made for relationship. God formed us. God made us. He made us to be a people of his very own. We were made for relationship. We are relational because God is. Remember, friends, that God has been in relationship for eternity long before he created us. God did not create us because he was lonely, because God has never been lonely. There's always been perfect fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why when God created man in his own image, it includes making us relational as he is. So God declared at the beginning of history, just after he made the first person, Adam, God said famously, it is not good that man be alone. Now, the truth is, Adam was actually not alone since he already had relationship with God. But we were made for relationship with one another as well. That's why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You remember that among the two that he gave was love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. And as we've seen over these last several weeks in our series on the Ten Commandments, that the two tablets of the Ten Commandments each relate to those two great commands that Jesus said are chief among all of God's 613 commandments given in the Old Testament. Namely, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. In terms of loving your neighbor as yourself, you have six of the ten commandments that relate to that. The first is honor your father and your mother. Why? Because doing so is consistent with love. Love your neighbor. Love others. So that means doing those things that are consistent with loving others, like honoring your father and your mother. Then it goes on to say, you shall not murder. That means if we love our neighbor, we're not going to do things that are inconsistent with love. Everybody agree that murder would be inconsistent with that? You shall not commit adultery. Inconsistent with love. You shall not steal. Likewise, inconsistent with love. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. All of these 
inconsistent with love. Love is the barometer, the measure of the behavior of those who belong to God. Why? Because he's a relational God. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. God's very nature is love. So if we are his children, then it follows that we are going to reflect that love in the way we behave with one another. And thus, the measure of all of those commands on a horizontal level is whether or not they are consistent or inconsistent with love. We were made for relationship. I say in your outline, we were made for relationship not only with one another, but with God. Jesus said there are these two great commands. Love your neighbor as yourself was one of those. But first he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And likewise now, the tablet of the table of the law related to our vertical relationship with God, loving the Lord your God. Again, the measure of whether or not we're doing that is whether or not what we do is a reflection of love for God. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? It's inconsistent with love for God. You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We cannot say we love God and give other things or persons first place in our lives. You shall not take the name of the Lord God, Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name In vain. Why? Inconsistent with love for God. And then remember the Sabbath day. Consistent with prioritizing God because we love him. The fact that God has never been lonely. That he's always had a perfect relationship within the triunity of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Means among other things this, friends. That God does not need us. Have you ever considered that? As I said earlier, God didn't create because he was lonely. And the Bible says very clearly in Acts chapter 17 when the great apostle Paul appeared on a place in Athens, Greece called Mars Hill and he stood before Greek philosophers and he preached to them and he started his sermon in verse number 24 of Acts chapter 17 saying the God who made the earth and everything in it does not dwell in temples made by hands. And then he goes on to say this, God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God is complete in himself. God needs no one and no thing in order to complete him. So that means God can truly love us because he is not needy. Hmm, Have you ever thought about that? God can truly love us because he's not getting something out of it, as it were. God is complete in who he is before ever making us. And there's a lesson for us in that, one that I've given you a number of times over the years. That we each need to learn to love more than we need. We need to learn to love each other more than we need each other. Very often our relationships are dysfunctional because there's an unhealthy codependency, to use the psychobabble terms. There's all of that going on because, in fact, we need the person more than we actually love them. 
And God always loves more than he needs since he needs nothing. Because God made us for a relationship with him and then in turn with others, it means, friends, that every person that God has created and formed is a theologian. You say, really? I'm a theologian. Yep. Sometimes I hear people disparage theology, doctrine. You know, I just don't. Don't give me all of that. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Give me five steps to a happy marriage. Give me six keys to that kind of thing. So they disparage truth. They disparage theology. We need to remember that if God is central, and he is, if God is the one who made us, if we are what we are because God is who he is, if all of that is true, theology simply comes from the word God. It simply means the study of God. And so we are to all be then theologians. In everything that you and I think and say and do, we're to be transacting with this God. Every moment of every day, we're to live in the Latin phrase, quorum Deo. In the presence of God. Before the face of God. That means, friends, in the so-called little stuff in your life. You're to live in the presence of God. All the irritations, all the unexpected interruptions in your schedule, every one of those is on the calendar and by appointment of a sovereign God. And those who live Coram Deo recognize that and then ask themselves, Lord, how can I redeem this moment for your glory? Oh, I need to be reminded of that all the time. What's God got to do with it? God's got everything to do with it. If we truly live in the presence of God, we were made for relationship with God. Because he made us to be, I say in your outline, revelation receivers. We were made by God, formed by God, to receive communication from God. That's why the very first man and first woman did not require any instructions to know the voice of God. They were made to know the voice of God. They were made to receive instruction from God. The very first chapter of your Bible describes the six days of God's creative activity. And most of you have read that, and so you know there's kind of a cadence that goes on in that chapter. Third verse of the Bible says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So the very third verse, you have God speaking, and God said, let there be light. But at this point, he's not speaking to humanity He hasn't made humanity as yet. But God is a speaking, communicating God. And God said. And then as you go further in the chapter, you have this cadence. God said. In verses 6 and 9 and 11 and 14 and 20 and 24 and 26. A total of eight times. God said. But then there's a break in the cadence. You get to verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. It says this. God said. Notice them. Ah, who would that be? That would be the first human couple. 
God is a communicating God and God made humanity to receive his communication. And God said to them. God did not say to, he says about the rest of creation, but he says to humanity. This is what you're to do. We are revelation receivers and we are interpreters. That is, we investigate and explore and assign meaning to what we find. We were made, friends, to see God in that which we observe. Everything. So just take a simple example. Something as simple as yeast. Flour, water, and a little oil. The yeast and those elements make something soft from hard. Without yeast... One author has said, all of life is a cracker. And who thought of yeast? God did. We need to learn to be able to get from dough to God and back. Because we see God in everything. What's God got to do with it? Everything. Why? Because God's in everything. This is built into who we are as humanity. And so we see this in our children, this idea that we were made to be interpreters. Our children are interpreters. Your child thinks, believe it or not. He's trying to make sense of his world. I read the story of a child who fell down just a few stairs But there was a beach ball that he had left at the bottom of the stairs that cushioned his fall. That week, he had learned about angels at church, and he immediately thanked angels for protecting him. In his worldview, a beach ball and Sunday school came together. He's interpreting his world. We're revelation receivers. We are interpreters. And we are worshipers. You see, friends, the question is not whether you will worship, but who or what you will worship. We were made for God. We were formed for his glory, Isaiah 43, 7. We were made for him. But sin causes us to pursue God replacements. And our lives are filled with potential and actual God replacements. Things and persons that capture our hearts and lead us not toward God, but away from the true and living God. So the question is not whether you will worship, but who or what you will worship. That great theologian, Bob Dylan, had a cup of coffee as a Christian back in the late 70s. He did an album, actually, during his Christian phase. Slow train coming. And he had a song on that album called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And he's right. You will serve somebody. You will serve someone or something. You will worship someone or something or someones or somethings, plural. But we were made to be worshipers of God. So, friends, we were made for relationship with people, with God, 
And we must be, I say in the outline, remade for relationship. First of all, with God. You see, the reason that we fail to see God in all of life, the reason that we forget that he is active and involved in all the details of our lives is because our perspective on life has been radically altered by sin. Sin blinds us to God. And even those of us who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we still suffer from the vestiges of sin. We still suffer from a now partial blindness. We don't automatically see him in all our circumstances as we were originally made to do. So sin causes us to shut God out. You see that in the third chapter of the Bible. Sin enters the equation and immediately the man and the woman who were made for relationship with God are now hiding from God. Sin causes us to suppress the truth that we know about God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Sin causes us to banish God to a small area of our lives when we were made by him and for him and he was... He is to be central to every aspect of our lives. And so the Bible often speaks of sin in terms of blindness. We don't see life. We don't see its details the way we're supposed to see. We don't see the connection between those things and God. And so 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 says, The God of this age, small g, the God of this age has blinded the minds of of unbelievers. And those who are believers still live with the vestiges of that blindness. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 that the mind of the unbeliever is actually hostile toward God in the way he thinks. And so his or her perspective is warped. They no longer see God. But Jesus declared, thanks be to God, that his mission was, among other things, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. So God has saved you. God has delivered you. God has rescued you. Not just so you have a ticket punch to go to heaven. Hear this. But so that now you have a new passport through life. So that now your eyes are open to that which you were blind to before. So that now you see and embrace what you previously suppressed. That's what it means to be made new in Christ. Is to see Him in every hue. There's something beautiful in God's world, as the hymn writer said, that Christless eyes have never seen. And that's why famously in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to be a new creation. What's God got to do with it? How are my eyes to be opened now, my perspective broadened, so that I see that God is in it? God is in the details. I'm to see God in it. I'm to worship God in it. I'm to learn from God because of it. 
And so your take-home truth today is this. Our relationship with God must be right in order for our relationship to anyone or anything to be right. If our relationship with God is not right, forgive the grammar, ain't nothing else going to be right. How do I begin that relationship with God? Or it may be the case, how do I renew that relationship with God? Well, I begin that relationship with God by realizing that I'm a sinner. By recognizing that Christ has done what I could not do for myself. I told you his mission was to come and give sight to the blind and release prisoners from their captivity. He did that by living a perfect life of righteousness, the life that we were supposed to live, dying a death on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin. Realize then that you're a sinner, that your sin has affected you in the ways I've described and a myriad others. Recognize Jesus is the solution to that in his life and death. Repent. Ah, Lord, thank you for opening my eyes. Ah, Lord, now I see. I see now where I was blinded before. I repent. I now am going to go your way and not my way. That's what repent means. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to pray in just a moment. Now, as we do, if any of you have come into this room, do not have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can establish that, begin that relationship now. As you tell him that you are a sinner, ask him to forgive you of your sin. Tell him you believe who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that you're giving your life to him to go your way, God, no longer my own way. And as we pray, Christian friend, I would encourage you, as I do myself, to acknowledge to the Lord that we still struggle with the vestiges of sin. And we go throughout our day, we go throughout our week as practical atheists. Living our lives in compartments, shutting God out, not seeing how he is involved in every aspect of our lives and thereby robbing him of the glory that he deserves. Let's confess that to God. Let's ask God to open our eyes over the next several weeks together. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess We confess that our sin blinds us. Even those of us who have a relationship with you, we now suffer from blurry vision. It's in the process of being repaired. and You are doing your great reclamation project in our lives. But this side of heaven, this side of glory, we still see through distorted lenses. Lord, our minds are are dull so that we don't think about you the way we were made to think and transact with you. We do not live our lives quorum Deo. And so, Lord, I confess that in my own life. And Lord, on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, I, I ask you to help us as your people who are known by your name to be people who are alert and mindful and watchful 
And people who see life as it truly is because we look at life through the lens of your word given to us in order to have a worldview, a view of your world that is now accurate. And so that we indeed do interact with you all the time. Thanking you, learning from you, depending on you. Oh Lord, help us to be people who are theologians. who are God-centered in everything that you allow to come our way. And Lord, I pray for those who came into this room without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That they see that their perspective has been distorted. That they see that the description that your word gives us of sin describes, yes, me, describes other brothers and sisters here who have embraced that truth about ourselves, but but it describes them too. And that the only solution for that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, we ask you to do what only you can do. Draw people out of the world and to yourself. Granting new hearts, new minds, new eyes. We will give you the glory for all you do. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.